So, welcome to another episode of Let Me Say This. I'm your host, Tony Kristen Walker, and I have a guest. Y'all, I love it, <laughs> I love it when I have a guest. Uh, so, today, uh, you guys may remember our podcast on, white, on Black Kids and White Families, so I have my good friend, co-parent. It's hard to say. What happened to white? <laughs> How did wife. I get demoted <laughs> to good friend? Uh, Dr. Brian Welch uh, from UAB. How's it going? Good, good, good. Well, cool. So, um, our conversation, a lot of people have been talking about that last podcast. Yeah, apparently <laughs> it really shaped some minds. <laughs> well, you know, conversations like that need to be had, and uh, I think I like having those conversations with people who are in tune and connected, and you are definitely in tune and connected. So, uh, for those of you uh, who haven't listened to it, check out my next to the last podcast. Uh, talking about um, black kids and white families because Brenda's uh, uh, an adoptive mother. What's the what's the what's the best term for that? I say adoptive parent. I'm not sure really to tell you the truth. It's more problematic when we say it about children. So like when we call a child an adopted child, yeah, right? well, I, that makes it part of their identity. I love the way. bonus kid when you talk about uh, blended families. Like yes. I have a bonus child. Like yeah. bonus just sounds like you actually gained something. Yeah, but they're children and they're our children. Um, and I don't like the adopted thing either. Maurice is my son. Right. You know, that's where it Also, is. people end up saying weird things like, do you think about having one of your own? <laughs> like, this one is mine. <laughs> I'm like, yes, yes, I do. <laughs> Meet him. <laughs> here he is right here. So, um, we had a conversation, uh, and we wanted to talk about something differently. So, Brian, why don't you kind of lay out what, what our conversation was about? So, you called me with this story that... Um, a white woman of a black son had said to two black men in a restaurant, basically, um, I can teach him to be a white woman, basically. Like, I know how to raise him to be a white woman in the world. I have no idea how to raise him to be um, a, a black man. And I, this is something I've struggled with a lot with Ben. Right. Um, and there's like layer upon layer upon layer of complexity. And it is hard because, you know, um, Ta-Nehisi Coates has in Between the World and Me, he has this great section when he's talking to his son right. where he says, you will have to be responsible for your body in a way other boys will not understand. And importantly, you will have to be responsible for the bodies of all black men in a way that you will not, that other people will not understand. Right, right. But then he says, it's not just you. Women will have to be responsible for their bodies in ways you don't understand. Um, and I think it's so hard because maybe because I am a woman, I'm really scared of these threats, right? So I'm aware of these certain dangers and, you know, I'm aware of all the tips women get about how to avoid these dangers. Right. And, um, but the dangers my kid faces are really different. Um, and in particular, he will face dangers from people who look like me. Um, and he will be perceived as a danger to people who look like me. So trying to figure out how to raise a young black man when I don't know what racism feels like. Right. I am terrified of racism, right? I am terrified of being the mother who's crying on TV because <laughs> her innocent kid was killed right. by some do-gooder. Um, I'm terrified of that moment. And so it's like, it's like the most important thing to me to teach him how to navigate the world that way. 
But then as a woman, it's also really important to me to teach him to be a man that respects women, right? So I, it, it, that's there. How's that for a layout? (laughs) (laughs) So, so the situations are are the same yet different. I I went to a sexual assault conference a couple of months ago and there was a guy by the name of Obi West who's out of uh, Los Angeles or somewhere in California. He had this shirt that I loved. It said, cleavage is not consent. I know. I've seen this picture of you with this. I love <laughs> I, that shirt. I love shirt. that shirt. But it also says that coercion is not consent. Right. You know, then there's all these um, conversations about what consent looks like when you're talking about women and when you're talking about sex and things like that. But there is not a lot of conversation. I think a lot of productive kind of conversation about what does it look like when you have to literally walk into a room and redefine yourself because of the room that you walk into? So um, I'm hoping, I know Mandy is probably going to listen to this because I'm going to tell her to listen <laughs> to it. But um, Maurice started uh, uh, Red Mountain Community School um, back in 2016, I guess. So he's been there. This is his third year. And uh, I, I love Red Mountain. I, I, I really think that... Um, it should be the model for what schools should be just because of the, the caring that they have with the teachers and the way they treat mm-hmm. the kids. But, you know, coming from our old school upbringing in public schools and a, a black family, which there was mm-hmm. a disciplinarian, there were a couple of things um, that were that were a little foreign to me. So Maurice had gotten into a little tay-to-tay with these kids, and you know Red Mountain. They're gonna bring the kids in. They're gonna make to make their, amends. Make a make, they're gonna make, make amends, amends and make their peace, and then they're gonna go about their business. Well, that's fine. You know, we talk about a bunch of white kids, mm-hmm. and so Maurice Bobby had told me what happened, and we talked to Maurice about it, and we told him like, listen, if someone escalates something with you, you cannot raise the stakes mm-hmm. because you will end up getting shot. No matter how you feel. No, no matter, matter how you. No feel. matter how you feel there's a chance that you may not be able to walk away from the situation. Mm -hmm. So that was the living in America as a black man Mm -hmm. conversation. So then we had the old school just respect conversation because had it been me, my grandparents would have said, now you go back up to that school and you apologize to your teacher for acting a fool in her class and you apologize to anybody Mm -hmm. that you offended. So I, (laughs) Jackson, Mandy, and Melanie, and I was like, you know, Bobby told me what happened, blah, blah, blah. And so, and I was like, well, Maurice is going to apologize. Mandy sent me this text message back. I just pulled it up. This is, she says, she goes, I really don't think Maurice has anything to apologize for, exclamation point. <laughs> Sounded to me like he was being taunted by some kids, and he responded in kind. He was able to say his truth, and they uh, said theirs, and, and they found peace. He was at no more fault than the rest of them were. Did he tell you something different? And I was like, no, he didn't tell me anything different. But I told her, I said, um, no, I just don't think that he should have responded in kind. I'm glad that you understand that, but we have to help him realize that his reality isn't the same as the other kids there. Uh, I know you all don't make any differences, but the world will judge him differently. And we have to prepare him for that. With that being said, we trust you to do the best at school and we can handle the lessons at home. Thank you for loving our child. It really means a lot. And, and that's how I feel. And that's why, you know, I love I love that school. I love the teachers. I love the students. I love everything about it. And Maurice will probably end up graduating. I'm in a class of two. But he'll, 
he'll probably end up graduating from that school because I want him to be in a place where he can be nurtured, where, you know. For he, who he is. For who he is. Mm-hmm. So then Mandy sent this, and I hope I don't cry. But she sent this the next morning, and she said, good morning. Forgive my slow response. My head and heart are full of gratitude and tenderness and also sadness and anger. She said, it's easy to love my reason. He's a joyful, kind, and eager, and loving being. She said she went to hear uh, Brian Stevenson at Stanford, Mm -hmm. and she didn't think it was a coincidence that she had received my text right before going in. This is what she said that made me realize that she gets it. She says, I don't understand all the ways you must anticipate society and culture for Maurice, but my heart feels so heavy for the ways that you have to prepare him because of his differences from the other kids. I think the similarities are much greater than the differences, but I'm not going to be idealistic. I want to face all of the realities. I know that it's costing you and Bobby and Maurice in many ways to be in our school, and I may be stumbling (laughs) along in hopes of offering a just and honoring community for Maurice, but I want a place where Maurice's story and the truth of what he must suffer because of our history of racism and terror can be confronted. Maurice's presence is a gift to me. I'm going to fight for him to have the best books, the best ideas, and every advantage in this community. We don't hear words like that. No. What we hear is, suck it up, all you play in the race card, um, and or, you know, the response that I've gotten from, not at Red Mountain, you're absolutely <laughs> right. I love Red Mountain, and I share the fear, right, that Red Mountain is idealistic. And so it's it's what I want for my child, but I do have this preparation worry, right? So, like, I find myself saying to him sometimes, like, it just doesn't matter how you feel right now, right. which is not what I mean. I mean it can't be carried out in your body. It right. can't. Um, so, so what I've often heard when I talk to teachers because one of the things I'm really cautious about is that I'm really tough on Ben and I know you think like my version of a bad bad you know the bad guy is is a wuss but no I really don't like I really don't I think it's new school I think it's something that I honestly wish I had had those tools when I was mm-hmm. raising my first yeah I, I really don't I, it's funny to me sometimes <laughs> but no I don't think you're easy on him at all but the things that I pick on him about I think to other parents or parents of other children seem really small and they also seem to be asking him to act counter to his nature, right? right? So, like, we, I do, I say things, and it just, it feels so gross to say it, but we do things like, you have to control your body so that no one else controls it for you. Mm. Um, we say, our, the rule in our house and the language we use is, comply first, ask second. Because I want, like, I want him in this habit of, you are absolutely entitled to ask why. No, he doesn't do that all He does time. not. Not even, <laughs> not even. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's in the vicinity of like most of the time. Or really but he's even a baby, he, and babies are rebellious. Yeah, so. but we say the rule, and he knows what the rule right. is supposed to be. But that's language that I would not probably not use with a white child because I wouldn't be thinking your life depends on compliance. Right. Um, so the thing that I've had teachers say to me when I kind of prepare them for this, when I say I'm really worried because I I need Ben to dial it. He's a very energetic kid. He is a full body expressive kid (laughs) and it's beautiful and magical and the scariest thing to me about him. Um, and, uh, and it's made like even scarier because the reason he's a full body kid is this beautiful, energetic spirit. It's not mad. It's not mean. It's just a, he's... He's just a full body kid. He's a full. Um, and it's beautiful. And the thought that that might cost him in really big ways is, is very scary to me. So I've had teachers in the past who've said, well, you don't need to be thinking about that now. And I always think Tamir Rice was 12. So when do you want me to think about it? Right. 
you want me to try to teach him how to behave when he's 12? Or should I bank on it happening when he's 10? Right? But not only was Tamir Rice 12, but to the perception of Tamir Rice to those police officers. 20s. Was he this big hulking mm-hmm. threat? He's something in, that's on the 911 call when they said something like like yeah. 20-ish or something. He's, he's a 12-year-old kid and he's a threat. You know? And it captured the whole, you know, and I have this, I don't know if you have this, um, that kids play shooting games and Ben's not allowed to. Ben's not allowed. I don't allow water guns. I don't allow toy guns. And I don't like gun glorification anyway, but the emotional attachment I feel to like, he has to get this one right. Right. And it's hard for him, I think, because his friends at school play shooting games and he knows he, like, he'll come home and tell me. Um, so let me tell you this. So, like, hard. the first, the, this is all the first year of us going through Red Mountain. And again, it's just been a wonderful experience. But we had gone on this uh, camping trip three days out in the woods with these kids. Oh, Jesus Christ. But anyway, so one, so at the end of the second day, I was like watching the boys, and the boys were doing something that most people don't think about. They would go up to some of the cabin doors, and they would knock and run. <gasps> no, deadly. Scared the shit out of me. Like, literally, I'm like. Black people have been shot like, for like, that. Like, Maurice, you can't mm-hmm. do that. Like, you absolutely can't. Yeah. He was like, well, why, Papa? You you will get, you cannot do that. Like, you, you can't even do that in your own neighborhood. And it feels just evil. It, it feels evil to tell your it, child it feels evil, that they can't it do it. It feels hurtful. It mm-hmm. feels like you're a terrible parent mm-hmm. because they don't quite get it. You know? It also feels to me, and it might feel this way to me because I'm white, it feels to me like I'm endorsing the system. or so, Right? Like, mm. it feels to me like I am, because there is a very real sense in which I am a white woman telling a young black child that he can't be scary. I, so and I'm doing it for protective purposes, I, but it's still there's a weird dynamic there. You, 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 your dynamic is very weird in that because it does, without knowing white you, white person telling a black kid how that, they should what act, what you can and what you can't do. And, but I don't, I don't. So we had this conversation um, on on my other podcast about intent. Mm-hmm. So like we got in this big conversation about um, there was a Oklahoma newscaster who referred to her black co-worker as looking like a gorilla. Yes, I saw and that. So then she goes, did this whole full throttle white tears apology on TV. But didn't call it racist. Didn't call it racist. Didn't um, even acknowledge the racial not, not There were so many things. So me and my two co-hosts kind of differed on that because they mm-hmm. wanted to know the context. And my whole thing is context really doesn't matter in situations like this. For me, it doesn't. For different people, for me, it doesn't matter. If you're a white person and you have black friends and you uh, refer to them as primates, that is an old racist trope from way back. And the reason why I think we have so many problems with being able to call racism racism is because even within our own community, we're going to give people a a pass. We never have these issues when it comes to something that's anti-Semitic. Like the, the most over the under the top thing can be called anti-semitic and nobody argues with that but referring to a black child as a primate we can argue about that um a black person being shot in the back while running away from the police we can argue about that which is just as a side note one of the things that i get outraged about in all children's stores is that many of the clothes for small children have monkeys on them and i think you know that I can't put that on my child, though, right? So, but here's the thing, though. So, so, but here's the thing. I think it goes back to it. part of me, in which I'm probably part of the problem. Like, part of me goes back to the intent. So, going back to your 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 thoughts about 
you being a white woman telling a black child what they can and what they can't do with their body, it's not your intent isn't to do that. Your intent is protecting. Mm-hmm. It's not prescriptive. So there's a little bit of nuance, but somebody would have to know you and know your whole oh, story listen. in order to get there. And Tony, I got to tell you, like when I'm in the grocery store, if he has a full body meltdown, oh, if I'm out, because I think sometimes about this inclination people have to record and report, mm-hmm. right? Like here's a scene I've seen. And I think about, you know, I am tough. I am tough and I am short with that. Like I just, well, you can't do this. Right. And in a public setting is particularly where you cannot, like if we're at home, I will send him to his room and he can flail and melt down all he wants to. As we have seen. But, right? Like <laughs> I don't physically restrain him if we're at home, you know? Um, but it is a really, it, it's not that I'm worried about what people think about me. But I do worry about his lived experience of being in public and having a white woman tell him to control his body before somebody else does or but tell you, him comply first. But you know you're almost in a place where you can't win. I can't. Yeah. <laughs> because, it's a, it's, because even with even with that situation, there's a dichotomous like breakdown. So you either one, the very permissive white woman who has no control of her children. With or budget, no awareness of the world he's going to, how right, bad this will be right. for him. Yeah. Or you're that mean white woman who's telling this black kid what he can't do. You know what's funny? Money. And for my kid in particular, and you already know this, the like dichotomy runs along two dimensions because not only is he uh, a young black man, um, he also loves sparkly dresses. And one of the reasons I love Red Mountain, right? So is that he gets to be himself and it's right. supported and it's cheered on and it's and I think that's amazing and wonderful. And the downside to that is that he's not prepared for what it's like when the public reacts differently. And he's had this happen a couple times with like kids he's bumped into elsewhere. And then there's a part of me that thinks, oh, I should be, because we talk about how people might react. Right. But it's different from him being kind of prepared for that response. And so I think like, oh, should I be sending him, you know, should, am I am I not preparing him for the world? But I don't like, I don't want to put him in harm's way just to prepare him for, you know, that but here, seems terrible. So here's the thing, because you know. It's when, hard. When we when we first met, you know, when Lynn introduced us, we I was under the impression that Ben was like pre actualization of being trans, and I don't think he is. No, I don't think he is. Ben is a little boy who no one told him he can't wear dresses. Yeah, and I'm okay with that. Yeah, because I feel like children should be able to explore and do mm-hmm. whatever they need to do to get by. And there's some people who will say, "Well, no, he's not supposed to." Do but that's why masculinity is another problem. And sparkly we, dresses are more interesting than other clothes. <laughs> I, I totally agree. I totally agree. Whereas it's something that I never wanted to do and wouldn't do. I feel like if kids want to do it, let them do it. Yeah. But I do love the way that you let him make his own decisions about that. Like the community thing that you went to. And you're like, well, Ben, you know, if you go as, uh, what was this little uh, Halloween costume? Lady? Claudine. If you go at Cla- Claudine, somebody might say something. Mm-hmm. And he made up his mind that that's he what did, he was yeah. going to do. Now, the outcome did not bode well for him. Right. He was heartbroken. <laughs> but, you know, that's his decision. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to let kids have some sort of autonomy mm-hmm. when it comes to, especially issues about their identity and who they yeah. are. Yeah, for sure. You know, we when um when, when we first got Maurice, he was going to Glen Iris. Uh, elementary school. I love Glen Iris. I think it should be like the model school for Birmingham City Schools, especially for elementary schools. But one of the issues that I encountered, uh, all the, all the, everybody knew we were the gay couple with the boys. I mean, that's, <laughs> and they didn't give us any trouble about that. But one day, uh, one of the teachers was like, hey, Tony, once you finish um, traffic, I want you, I got something to ask you. I'm like, 
we already told you I'm gay. Like, what, 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 what you got to talk about? <laughs> so <laughs> she tells her that this little girl had cut her hair and told everybody that she feels like she's a boy and she didn't know what to do. And my response to her was, well, let her be who she wants to be or let him be who he wants to be because at that age of a child feels like that, no one is telling them that this is okay. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you're feeling like that at four years old, fly with it sure. and, and, and fly high. <laughs> I said, because the other kids are not going to care. Yeah. The problem is the stupid parents. Yeah. Because that's where you're going to have a, have the issue. But I said something then that I didn't realize it was as profound at that point. But I said, you know, the problem is there are people who say that gay people want to turn straight kids gay. Mm-hmm. When that's not the case, the opposite is actually true. Straight people want to turn gay kids straight. Yeah. And we know who we are as little kids. You yeah. know, we, none of us wake up at 13 and go, hmm, I think I like the way that <laughs> football player likes. You've been looking at boys since you were three or four years old. Yeah. You know, but you've been afraid to express it. So I do think that there's a lot of value in being able to let children make their own decisions about how they want to express themselves right. and when and where. But again, it's not the 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 thing that I like about where Ben is, and then we're going to our break, is that you're not doing this in a vacuum. Yeah. So you know when you think about the perfect the uh, protective factors that go with the the great school that both of our kids are going to, they get the ability to be who they are without yeah. anything. But when they come back home, then you go into the reality of the real world. Right. You know, so there is no like there is no I'm just living in this bubble. And when I turn 18, I'm outside the bubble. I don't know how to fuck to deal with this real world. Yeah, no, you're coming home to a mother who says, like, it does not matter how you feel. You may not move those arms that fast, right? Like, Right. Look, so this brings us to a good part for our break. We're going to go on break and we're going to come back. AIDS Alabama is now doing free in-home HIV testing. That's right. That's your Right. If you can't come to us, we'll come to you. Uh, a lot of people don't like coming into places to get tested. We will come to your house and test you there and give you the results. In your car. Or the park. Wherever you want to meet us, we'll meet you there. At the beauty shop. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like to make an appointment to get tested, go to www.gcbham.com. So we are back. Thanks again for listening to Let Me Say This. Um Whatever platform you're listening to and on, please be sure to rate us, like us, share us with your friends. Um, these are some really good podcasts that we're doing. So um, we kind of got off on a tangent about uh, the race and sexual identity issue as it pertains to our kids. But I want to go back to, you were talking about <clears throat> the issues with women and how women have to protect their bodies yeah. as well. Yeah. So, so um there's, there's two things that make this funny to me. As you know, my child loves Beyonce and loves Lizzo. I don't know if he's introduced, he's pointed out to you that he not, loves no, Lizzo. No, we haven't had the Lizzo discussion. That's actually good, because he knows he's not supposed to sing Lizzo with other, <laughs> this is like a, and he knows which words he's supposed to skip. Right. But some of the words he doesn't know to skip, right? So he was singing like, once upon a time I was a hoe, I don't want to ho-, you know, and I was like, oh. So I was like, it's not technically a bad word, right? So we're trying to have this distinction and trying to explain to a young child, like, there are words that if you use them, it is disrespectful to women. Right. And you may not use them for that reason. Um, so, yeah, it's it's strange to try to raise a young boy as a woman because I'm particularly concerned that he grow up to be the type of person who makes the world better and safer for right. women. Um 
But the flip side of that is that I am a white woman, and I don't want to, like, privilege the concerns of white women <laughs> over the concerns of young black boys, right? So there's this great article by Questlove um, on getting onto an elevator, and he's talking about going into an apartment, his apartment building, right? Which Questlove is rich, so this is a very nice apartment building right. with security. Um, and so he's made it through security, and he gets on the elevator, um, and he is, right, a huge black man. And he, there's a white woman on the elevator with him. And she, he realizes, I can't remember how it happens, but he realizes basically that she doesn't want to indicate what floor she's going to um, because there is a huge black man on the elevator with her. Been there, been there. And one of the things I love about Questlove's take on this is that he recognizes the wrongness in the assumptions that she's making um, and that it's problematic. Right. But he also acknowledges the wrongness in her social conditioning that as a woman she has to think about things like there's a man on the elevator I don't know I want to make sure right so um, it seems implausible to me that there's not a racial dimension and he you know of course there's a racial dimension we're socially conditioned to treat some men as more terrifying than right. other men um, but I loved this article because he, recog he, he basically talks about the fact that in this elevator there are two people who constantly have to think about, like, what are the dangers and how can I, right? He talks about having to make himself seem small all the time. Oh my and God. Worrying in parking garages, right? That, like, he doesn't want, if there's only one person walking through the parking garage, he can't get out of his car yet because that's going to scare that person. Going to an ATM. Yeah. Going to an ATM, like, that's one of my things. Like, going to an ATM and there's a woman, not just a white woman, but a woman in yeah. general, I'm always in my car until they get securely in that car because I don't want to put them at, I don't want to make them feel uncomfortable, although my yeah. mere presence should not yes. do that. Right. I do realize that how the media and society have portrayed people who look like me. Yeah, and this is one of the things he talks about, right, is that, like, she had all sorts of problematic and harmful assumptions about him. And he should not have had to make her feel comfortable. Right. But he also recognizes that her world is such that she, so, like, where he spends his time trying to make sure people feel safe, she spends her time trying to protect her, right? There's... Um, you know, the example I always use with students is that um, every woman you know has walked to her car with keys between her fingers. Every woman you know has at some point walked to her car. But the question has to be asked, though, like, and this is where, like, being a woman, being a minority is fraught with all types of concerns. But, like, if it had been a white man. Right. Like, her her demeanor and posture should have been the same. Right. But she likely would have assumed that he lived in the building. Right. Yes. And he wasn't a villain. Yeah. And that's part of what Questlove is, right? Because one of the things he wants to point out is, like, A, I'm real well known. <laughs> <laughs> and B, this is an apartment building where I got through security, and it's not a lax security right, system. Right. So why wouldn't you have extended to me the courtesy of assuming that I live here just as you would have... For somebody else. That happens all the time. On one of my favorite podcasts, The Read, they were talking about that. Crystal uh, was talking about that a couple of, maybe like a month or so ago, how there was a woman who asked her, well, where do you live? Where are your keys? Like, bitch, I live here just like you do. Yeah. You know, and that goes to the Which we see happening all over the news, white people right? Never people mind standing in their, in their yard. <laughs> <laughs> like, mind your business, white people. Yeah. Like, no, we can't do that. No, you can't p p police the world. But 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 the other thing with, with bodies I was, there was, at this particular conference I was at, there was a woman who told her sexual assault story. <clears throat> and I don't want to rehash it, but 
as a woman, you have to be on your P's and Q's all the time. Yes. And the sad part about it is there is a racial component that makes you more environmentally aware when you're around black men. But when you're around white men, you're not as aware. Like, I look at, like, with Jeffrey Epstein and, like, all these men who have, like, sexually abused women or sexually assaulted mm-hmm. women. And there's a, a a strange relationship between class and race as well. Because mm-hmm. if you have enough money, then you're not considered to be one of the average Negroes. You're almost like... <laughs> <laughs> the acceptable Negro, like Bill Cosby, the good kind, the good, the good kind. Like, how does how does Bill Cosby rape that many white women? <laughs> also, just to add like layer upon layer of complexity, maybe if you had more multi-dimensional and meaningful representation in media, we would have been willing to bring Bill Cosby down a lot sooner. A lot sooner. But part of the problem was like he was the good black He's man a black on TV. Man that's in the NBC and right? they're trying to tear him so down. So you can't take him down, right? Um, and I, oh God, it's so bad. It's so bad. The other thing that's hard for me is trying to figure out how to balance it. So for Ben, what I try to do, right, is balance it by making sure that he's around people who look like him. So, right, right, you and Bobby are a real big deal to me, um, because I need black men teaching him how to be a black man. Um, but then it's also hard. So like where I used to live, I went to a predominantly black church. That was the only place really where he would see other people who looked like him right. and I would be in the minority and he would be in the majority. But then there's a worry that that's using people, right? That's like, <laughs> you cannot I've, win. I found some black people. <laughs> would you mind being in the presence of my child? Look, I found black people. <laughs> you can't win. Um, right. And it's really hard. And then because white people are so rarely in the minority, it's really uncomfortable, right? Cause we're not, we're not used to that experience. Um, and it's really uncomfortable. And as a result, I often like wasn't my true self in these contexts, right? It's a little different from me with you because most of most of the times I call you or ask you to my I'm losing my mind. So you're <laughs> seeing like the worst version of me. So I worry less about being inauthentic. But, um, you know, there is this worry that like when you're in the uncomfortable minority, suddenly you're more deferential and suddenly you're, you know, and it just is, it, oh, it's so hard because um, you, you never want to use people. And I do think there's a tendency, especially when like institutions and schools talk about diversity initiatives. I think there's a tendency to treat black people like they're in service to a white person's personal development. Right. So like, oh, we want white people to be around black people so that they become better people. And I think that's just using, it's <laughs> not. That's Can not, you do that on your own without you using the process? That's not the job. Yeah. Um, but then I worry that, like, I do something similar when I'm like, oh, Tony, can you talk to Ben about X, Y, and Z, <laughs> right? Um, like, so far, Ben has stayed away from guns. But the minute he doesn't, you will be the one getting that right. phone call. Um, which, I, which I accept. I mean, like, we – I think it's different when you formed a sense of community, like – we don't have a village. Yeah, a village. Like we don't have a casual relationship. Yeah. That's you know, true. we we show up each other's houses. I mean, we we talk all the time. So there's a difference between having a bona fide relationship or just using people when you need some black explain, yeah, explanation right. for something. You know. And I, and I think That's that, true. We have pizza even when I'm not worried about <laughs> his future as a black man. Right. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, there, 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 there's always like, um, you know, always lurking in the background. You know, the issues that we have as a society, as a country, with race. 
um, and with masculinity. Like yeah. you were talking about um, about the the issue with females. My nephew, my oldest, well, he's not my oldest nephew. I got so many different levels of kids. <laughs> so <clears throat> my nephew, who is fourteen, he um, identifies as is is gay. He uh, he 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 wants to be a photographer. He's really really smart. I mean, I love this kid. I've pretty much raised him since he was three years old, and we've always known that he was going to be on our team, and we <laughs> just waiting on him to to come through with the goods, right? But what I like about him, what I like about us, like people, like there are people who really think me and Bobby are like Facebook bullies. We're not bullies. We just don't take shit off people and don't come yeah. to me with some with some bullshit. You prize things other than civility, right? I do because mm-hmm. yeah. I'm gonna cut your ass out of me. No, I think that's I think <laughs> prizing civility got us Donald Trump. It absolutely did. It absolutely did. But um, so we had Birmingham Black Pride uh, two weeks ago now, and there was a girl from Planned Parenthood. And they were, if you signed up to be on their uh, mailing list, they gave you this shirt that says, I stand with black women. Now, I've never had a conversation with Quintus about why it's important to stand with black women. I never really had a conversation with him about a woman's rights to her body being, um, being under attack or under siege. But for him to say, I like the message of this shirt. Yeah. You know, and and, and and it means that you're doing something right. The right. children are Gives learning. Gives you faith for the future. <laughs> right. That they're learning through you vicariously. But he's not just looking at his levels of mar- marginalization, being a black man yeah. and being, you know, someone who identifies on the LGBTQ spectrum. But he's also looking at other people who are having problems <laughs> caused by these nut jobs on the right. Which is not a skill white feminists are known for. <laughs> No. I don't mean to laugh at that. I do mean to say... No, like, it's funny when you think about it. It's also funny Also, because you only hear... I mean, it's funny to me... So, the thing that makes it especially striking to me is that often when we talk about, say, wage disparities, they always cite the woman's... not The white woman's dollar figure, right? Employment as well. Which is weird because your case gets stronger if you, if you would point to the black woman. Like, the how egregious the gap is is more glaring. So there's something weirdly strategically misguided about ignoring women of color when you're de- like it's it's just such a bizarre white thing. White feminism is dangerous. White LGBT activism is dangerous because they like people who have marginalized communities who intersect with whiteness are marginalized or minorities when it's convenient, but they're white all the time. Until white people show them that they're not, mm-hmm. you know, uh, there was a um, a podcast that was listening called um, "Seen on Radio," and there's a, a, a series second second season called "Seeing White," and there was this thing I think oh, we talked yeah. about that with, with the Sikh. Yes, you know, in the 1920s, the only way you could become a U.S. citizen is you had to be white. Right. So we use the word Caucasian, which is taken from the Caucasus Mountains. And the Sikhs are from the Caucasian Mountains. Yeah. And so this guy was like, well, you have to let me in because, one, I'm from the Caucasian Mountains, so I'm Caucasian. I'm a high-level Sikh, and we treat low-level Sikhs the same way you treat black people. Yeah. So I have to be white. And they were like, no, bro, you ain't white. Yeah. You know, and, it, and it's interesting how whiteness presents itself in all of these different things. Whiteness presents itself when it comes to feminism. Yeah. It presents itself when it comes to LGBTQ rights. 
you name it, and whiteness presents itself in a very dangerous and usually divisive term because I've been told by white gay people that we need to stop playing the race card. Wow. You play the gay card all the fucking time. Now, you know, the other thing that's interesting about this, which I think is another layer, when um, synagogues were getting, synagogues and like the Jewish community center here in Birmingham were getting bomb threats, right? That string of bomb threats. Um, I had written a Facebook post about it and one of my friends reached out and said like, thank you because you're the only Facebook post I have seen about this. And so her lived experience was that like, Jewish people, her community is under attack and people are suddenly silent, right? Um, And I think this is kind of what it means to be marginalized, right? Is that like you watch your marginalization happen and you look at everybody else like, where are you? Where are you right now? And it feels like it's silent. But they also do that to us though. They're silent when it comes to mostly black issues and it's like, we're all marginalized, and the people who are against us are against all of us. Can we all just unify under one umbrella for once? Did you go? That was what I loved. Um, you know, that after Charlottesville, there was the stand as one. Mm, yeah, yeah. And I loved that the whole theme was like, everybody's under attack. I mean, I didn't love that the theme was everybody's <laughs> under attack. That's not good. Right. But I liked the idea... I liked the idea that it was such a it was such a, an in-person representation of like an attack against you is an attack on me. Exactly. But when you intersect with whiteness, you're kind of like insulated from from the from, the, from so the worst bad. parts of that. Reverend Barber had um in for North Carolina had made the statement years ago. He was like, you know, the people who are against black people are the same people who are against LGBTQ rights, they're the same place people against a woman's autonomy for her body. They're the same people who get social services. Mm-hmm. And guess what? We build up all our little silos and we fight individually. When the people who we individually fight together are unified. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that. even when you think about our political landscape right now. Right. I have my picks and chooses for who I want <laughs> to be the, the candidate from the Democratic Party. Yeah. But true, 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 trueness, I don't give a shit. Whoever gets it, I'm going <laughs> to vote for them. Like, if it's... Amy Klobuchar, I'm going to vote for her. Chris, Kirsten Gillibrand just got out of the race today. I don't like her, but I would have voted oh, for her. Oh, Yeah, she that. just dropped out today. Buddha Judge, <clears throat> don't like him. But you know what? If he becomes our nominee, I'm going to vote for him. If Republicans can, can like, hold their noses and vote for a scumbag like Roy Moore, <laughs> certainly Democrats, both progressive, moderate, or what have you, can marshal ourselves behind whomever gets the, the Democratic nomination. You know what's funny to me is that this conversation is like a weirdly macro scale of the conversation about like the worlds we create for our children mm-hmm. because the idea is like, look, it doesn't mean we don't want to fight for the ideal. It means we have to try to get what we can in a real what? world. And yeah. sometimes that looks really ugly. Sometimes that looks kind of gross and i'm sorry but like ultra progressives are they're like well you know we should be bold enough to take this and i'm sorry but you're not gonna get free college tuition it's not gonna happen i also don't think you should but that could be a different podcast <laughs> that, oh, have I, you checked the latest news i don't think there should be yeah bullshit but what anyway. in the world yeah no i don't think there should be free on delivery college so yeah also, I have students who in the same breath will complain about K-12 education and, like, standardized testing, and then they'll say we should have free. And I think, like, what do you think happens to college the minute it's a public school system? Do you seriously think 
that somehow college is going to stay this like beacon the, of liberal arts and father goes mind-bending. Yeah, no, that's that's bizarre. But yeah, I don't think yeah. it should be free. But I think the people who want to access it should be able to access if they if they. If, yeah, I think we should make it more affordable. Right, right, because it's too high. Right, is is definitely it's too obscene. High. Yeah. Um, but no, I also think we should not repay student loan debt. I think college degree owner college degree holders have the highest earning power in the country. Americans, white. lots of Americans. It's fair. If they're white. See, that's the kind of thing that has to if, happen more. If they're white. Um, lots of Americans have debt and do not have the earning potential of a college degree. So if you're trying to alleviate debt and kind of recharge the economy, it's not clear to me what the argument is but, for alleviating but, but, the debt. But the other thing is, like, college literally, degree. college degrees for black people don't mean as much for white people. Yeah. Like, we have a trouble even trying to get the damn job. Oh, my gosh. So, sorry, I just got really excited. Um, I read this book once. It had it had nothing to do with my move to Birmingham, but it's called Some of My Best Friends Are Black by Tanner Colby. And one of the things he's talking about is like, how did I reach a point where I'm cheering on the election of the first black president and I have no black friends? Mm. Like, what did it take in social design for mm. it to be the case that I would see a black president before I would have a black person in my social circle? And, um, uh, but he, he talks about the college decision and he uses the, the uh, Cosby show but he notes that um, both Cliff and Claire in the Cosby Show, um, A, went to HBCU. an HBCU and uh, went into degrees where licensure is what matters. So it's not it's not that you went into connections because right. the trade-off, right? So he, he has this thing where, like, look, if you go to a college that is not an HBCU, um, you're likely to have to rely really heavily on connections and you likely won't have them. If you go to an HBCU, you run the connection problem because their connections are within the HBCU. Right. Um, and so it's, he said, like, this show was remarkable because it featured an attorney and a, and a medical doctor. But notice that their careers were, like, threshold careers, right? Like, you clear it, you've got the job, um, which is not what most jobs are. Which no, Most jobs absolutely aren't. Yeah. And, so I remember, like, this is my third iteration of my life, but my first my first career was working in retail, and and I eventually moved up to retail management because for some reason, whatever job I get, I usually start at the ground level. I find my way running the department, like now. <clears throat> but I found myself in a position when I worked at Rich's Department Store at the Galleria, being the person who, <clears throat> if young black kids came in for an interview, they may do terrible in the interview. Like, they just mm-hmm. suck ass in this interview. And I would still find myself giving them jobs because mm-hmm. I felt like they needed a chance. Because I know that when a lot of white people who are in position see Shaquisha's name, yeah. they go, oh, she's black. I'm going to put this over mm-hmm. here. Or when somebody else see Randrell, you know, we're going to put that over here. So I purposely, and for the most part, it worked out for me. There were a couple of bad hires that I did. But for the most part, that methodology of okay if they can actually come in and not like trip over themselves if they don't do a stellar interview i'm still going to give them a chance yeah. you know <clears throat> i guess it was kind of like my own affirmative action type thing that i was doing in my mind because i know that a lot of our black kids don't have the preparation skills that white people have because of yeah. resources because of environments because yeah. of any number of things but it was just one of those things where when you think about when you amplify that to having a college degree and you have a master's degree and you find yourself working at McDonald's or you find yourself working at Burger King in something that's totally not even related to food, that happens to black people a lot. Yeah. It happens to us a whole lot. Yeah. In fact, 
uh, evidence suggests that the bias on the resume test gets stronger the more qualified the candidate is. No lie. I have a friend who, if you look at his resume, it's like stellar. Like Ivy League schools, everything. A well-known Alabama politician who he was trying to help said, hired a private investigator to research him because he said, I don't think a black person could have a resume Uh, like this. You know, I remember when I was young, I like mouthed off. I just kind of like heard something about affirmative action, the dreaded affirmative action at school. And I came home and I just mouthed off like, well, I don't think it's fair that somebody. And I just remember my dad turned to me and he said like, no door will ever be closed to you because of the color of your skin. None, not one. Not so he was like, if you miss out on something, like you'll live. There will always be another door open for you. Um, which in hi- it's funny, I haven't thought much about that moment, but yeah, in but hindsight, I mean, like, well played, Jim Welch. But, but but even at that, you know, back to our original conversation before we go into the second break, the the whole thing about you know the cancellation of college debt. You know, maybe we should do it for black people who yeah. are in underperforming jobs because we don't have the earning potential, yeah. the potential to, to earn, right. you know, because of the way that this system is so jacked up. Yeah. Oh, God, this country is a shithole. But anyway, <laughs> we're going to go to a second break and we'll be back. <laughs> AIDS Alabama is now doing free in-home HIV testing. That's right. That's your Right. If you can't come to us, we'll come to you. Uh, a lot of people don't like coming into places to get tested. We will come to your house and test you there and give you the results. In your car. Or the park. Wherever you want to meet us, we'll meet you there. At the beauty shop. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like to make an appointment to get tested, go to www.gcbham.com. So we are back. Thank y'all for listening. Uh, some of these off-air conversations are pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> we should just have our own podcast I know, series. I, hey, let me. I, I'm down. And you can <laughs> come on this one anytime. So, to finish this out, I want to talk a little bit about what social justice looks like. Like, like when we talk about social justice, for me, it's all about making things whole. How do you uh-huh. kind of get your fair shake or your shot, uh, shooting your shot or, or being at bat? And so, during the break, we had this interesting um, intro about Rosa Parks. Yeah. Because tell me your tell me your issue with the Rosa Parks story. So my issue with the Rosa Parks story is that nothing we say in lessons to children is strictly speaking untrue. Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat. Rosa Parks was arrested. Following that, there was a bus boycott that changed. But my worry about this is that it leaves out information that's really critical and that has to do with the values we want to teach about racial justice. So... Um, hopefully your listeners know this, but I'm stunned by how many people don't. Rosa Parks, it is not her case that went to the Supreme Court and overturned bus segregation in Montgomery, Alabama. It was Claudette Colvin's case. Claudette Colvin, in fact, just had had, like, she was done. She was tired. She was the one who was like, "Uh uh-uh. And neither one of them were that old. Let's also start there. Sweet look. So she, but she was pregnant and unwed and couldn't be the, she had also resisted arrest and they needed a clean cut case. Um, But when I say they needed a clean-cut case, I am referring to a group of people who were already mobilized to organize a bus boycott. They were looking for a poster child for the bus boycott. Um, They had notified the transit system. They'd been in negotiations saying, if you don't change this, This here's what's going to happen. Black taxi drivers lowered their rates to the bus rate so that people wouldn't be unable to get to work when the boycott... Right? There was... I read once that, like, even critics of this 
had to admit that the bus boycott was organized and carried out with military-like precision. When Rosa Parks was arrested, the person she called was her boss who ran the chapter of the NAACP and had been organizing a bus boycott. This wasn't like some weird happenstance, sweet old lady is tired on the bus. She went to the Highlander School in Tennessee. She was ready for this moment of peaceful resistance. And the consequence is that the story we tell children is one person can make a difference. And I think it makes it the case that we evaluate all black people by the Rosa Parks standard. So did you, Tony, single-handedly overturn all of the systemic forces of racism? No? Well, something is wrong with you. Because Rosa did it, and she was just a little old lady. Right. She's just a tired little old lady, and she fixed it. But think think about the... Think about the other problems with this story, and I and I didn't really think about this until you started talking. It's also told from a very misogynistic lens at the same time, mm. because you have this female who is pretty much helpless. She's tired. Poor Rosa. Poor Rosa. Rosa's she, a badass. She's a bad. <laughs> she's one of the baddest asses out there. Like she's like she is the. Rosa definite, walks on the bus like bring it, bring it. <laughs> like not today, bitch. <laughs> like yeah. we finna do this. You want a box? Yeah. Catch these hands. You know, so 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 so, but it's it, but but that would give women too much power. Yeah, that would mean that you as can't a, have a woman, woman, right? That means that as a woman, you can't be powerful. That you're gonna need the men from the NAACP to come save you because you're just a woman. Yeah. So you know, there's that narrative that's For being sure. told about that. Then also the other narrative, and so I love and she was unthreatening. She was unthreatening. She was a safe Negro. If like, a black man had been doing it, he would have been resisting arrest no matter what he or did. Or a young pregnant girl like Claudia yeah. Calvin, who was darker skinned. Yes. You know, that's a whole yeah. nother thing. But the but the, the the thing that gets me, and I I love the strategy and the military-like precision that was used to take that out. What I don't like about it is that fact that you devalue someone else because they are not quote-unquote perfect. Yeah. And we do that all the time. And I and I can say this. I love and hate like some of the things in the progressive movements, like even with Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. For me, I don't need no hate mail from y'all because I'm going to say it. Don't get me fired. <laughs> no, no, this is me. Okay. This is me, but this is personal. This is total Tony. I don't put um, Tamir Rice and um, Philando Castillo and Trayvon Martin in the same boat as I put um, the guy from Missouri, Mike. Michael Brown. Michael Brown. I don't put them in the same boat, and I'm not comparing Michael Brown to a Claudette Calvin, but what I am... He wasn't the perfect victim. He wasn't the perfect victim. but He wasn't the perfect victim, but also his story is a lot different than those other Mm -hmm. ones. Now, none of them should be shot. None should be killed. Yep, exactly. None of them should be shot. But you, but in order to get sympathetic support, you got to have a sympathetic character, which I hate the fact that Claudette got shat upon and Rosa got elevated. But in order to get this yeah. job done, they had to be strategic and they had to have a tactic that worked. Yeah. This is how they were able to overturn things during the 60s with the civil rights movement. Oh, and this, to do it, you have to play into, because this comes up with the Michael Brown thing, right. right? There was loads of stuff about respectability politics and all sorts of, right, which was like. But sometimes you have to play into that. Yeah. I think that if the Black Lives well, Matter, I, and it makes you sick on the does, stomach. Yeah. I mean, it literally does. But I think in order for the Black Lives Matter movement to have gained even more ground and even more support, 
from not just non-black people, but other black people, I think it should have been a little bit more strategic and not such a decentralized movement. Decentralized movements, for me, are dangerous. Yeah. Because the Black Lives Matter, the original Black Lives Matter chapter that came up in Birmingham Mm -hmm. was homophobic as fuck. So don't ask me to join your cause when I'm being called punk, faggot, and sissy. I'm not not fixing to help you. You know, so... Having a a um a centralized cohesive mm-hmm. message and a plan, right? That goes a whole lot better than just saying we should matter. We know we should matter, right? You know, but how do you get that idea across to people who don't think you do? Yeah, that's a because one of the things I think is interesting <coughs> is that um, I hate that we need right. So so a lot of us spent a lot of time after any number of these shootings yelling about the idea that people were trying to find imperfections or find justifications. And I think, yeah, that's horrifying and it's outrageous. It's also what you know is going to happen, right? And there's a meaningful sense in which that's a social act. We tolerate that. We look for explanations. There's a, a not benign, but there's like a less evil explanation for it, right? Which is that people are looking for ways to distance themselves. They're looking for ways to be say, assured that it's not going to be them. Right, so women who talk about women who are assaulted and say like, "Well, they were drinking." Right, that's a woman. You had too much cleavage. Uh, right, so so that's that's a woman's way of saying it wouldn't have happened to me. Right, which isn't true, but you can imagine that being a psychological defense. But but we right when Tamir Rice was shot, one of the things that was said was he shouldn't have been playing with a toy gun in a park. But we wouldn't have shot a white kid playing with a toy gun in a park. Or a white woman. Think about the, no. that case in Minnesota where that black officer who was uh, Somali, a Somali oh, immigrant, right. mm-hmm. shot this white woman. He's going to jail. Well, yeah, there's, that one's done, yeah. It's, it's one and done. Yeah. Like, there's no, there's no conversation that white people need to have about that man killing that white woman right. because he shouldn't have killed that white woman. Because it just woman. doesn't matter. We're not going to look into it. Yeah. Right. But, but had, had it been reversed. Yeah. Had a black woman came up on the police knocking on yeah. that door like she did yeah. and got shot, oh, he was justified in killing. Oh. That's jacked up. And this is what I think is so hard about this, right, is that we can simultaneously know that that's terrible and morally outrageous, but also think like, but that's a given. Yeah. And so you have to, and then there's this worry that when you play into that, you're condoning it or you're making it possible or you're... It goes back Ugh. to it goes back to our original conversation yeah. about how we have to prepare our boys yes. differently for the world. Yeah. Yes. Because of course I think it's awful. Of course it's I think terrible. it's I think it's beyond unacceptable that basically the worst thing my child could do in terms of how I would discipline him is pick up a toy gun. Right? That's the the worst thing he could do. I would bring the fires of hell into <laughs> that conversation. And that's not, of course that's not fair. Right. Of course it's not. But I think, like, right, but if he plays with a toy gun, he might get killed, and so what would you have me do? Right? He needs to know that if he's locked out of the house one day, he can't go around the back. He needs to know, right, like, the sorts of things that... Knowing, okay. the, knowing the alarm code, I just saw something the other day where this man was arrested in his home because his alarm went off, and he didn't, he didn't turn that alarm code off in time. Right, and I, I think, like, of of course I think it's wrong that I have to prepare him for that. That doesn't change the fact that I have to... Pre- I would do something as wrong, if not worse, and reckless... By not preparing By not preparing him it, for that. Exactly. Exactly. But that's, that's where we but live. But you know what, though? Raising a black child, it's just not that different. It's not... That's what I've been told. <laughs> it's just the same. It's, it's pretty much the same. 
it is not. <laughs> and definitely not for a white woman. <laughs> what are we going to do, Brian? Like, what are we How gonna, are we going to fix it? How are we going to fix it? I really don't know, Tony. I really don't know. <laughs> I wish I, I did. It's, frust- it's, really fr- it's really frustrating that so many people don't see that. It's hard not to be pessimistic. It is very hard. Uh, I, yeah, it's really... I was also reading... This is only tangentially related, and I'm sorry for this, because I've been reading Coates' Between the World and Me, and one of the things he talks about is when, you know, every February in school, you're kind of shuttled off to watch these movies about black civil rights heroes, and that they're always praised for their nonviolent approach. And he says, I don't, why is it only our heroes who are praised for being nonviolent, right? Like, why do blacks need a lesson in nonviolence as kind of a moral, right? So he says, like, we're talking about a country that was founded on raping and pillaging. Violence, just just flat out foul violence. But when it comes to, like, black people who are praiseworthy, the thing we point to is, like, and nonviolence. Isn't that, which has translated somehow between then and 2019 to peaceful, which is not true, right? That was a weird move and so now people view any protest that's like slightly inconvenient to them i was laughing the other day because tennessee has passed a like get out of the fast lane law we did too and people were so excited about this like good you're in my way and i thought it is funny to me that like if somebody is going too slowly on the highway and you are remotely inconvenienced or frustrated by that you will like burn it down until there's a law (laughs) but like if my kid can't go to the grocery store without fear of being shot Everybody's like, you should not be protesting. I got two words for you. That is disruptive. White people. That is disruptive. <laughs> you should not be in my way about that. Right, right, right. How dare you be angry? How, how dare you be angry? How dare you be... How dare you... God inco- help you if you lash out over it. How dare you inconvenience me? Yeah. You know, and that's that's what, that's what we are. Our existence, our mere existence is inconvenient. So we have to be peaceful. Otherwise, we get shot. That's what we are in this country. That's what we are. God, is that going to be the ending thought on this podcast? <laughs> we have to be peaceful. Otherwise, we're shot. That's, you know, the, the, this is not the same. It is not the same. But during the Yes All Women, hashtag Yes All Women, right, the, which preceded Me Too, one of the tweets that really went viral was, we are taught as women to tell men in bars we have boyfriends because they will respect another man before they will respect us. Mm. So our no is not. So we are taught, I thought this, oh, this is a whole other podcast, but when the Assis Ansari mess happened, mm-hmm. and she had said something like, I don't want to feel like I'm being forced or something, and he was like, oh, yeah, no, it's not fun if we're not both having fun. I had this totally enlightening moment where I thought, women are trained not to say no. We're trained to either do it and deal with it or find a way that conveys that we're not wanting this, but without actually saying no because that's dangerous. And men are taught to listen for the word no. So I read this conversation where I thought like, oh my God, we've taught women not to say a word that we've told men is the only word they have to listen for. Oh my God, yeah. What? Yeah. What? So. And that's not consent. So I don't want to, yeah, but it can't be the case that it's like black people have to be peaceful and women have to just be compliant. But that's what we are. (laughs) And then there will be peace, peace in the land. But 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 that's exactly what we are. I wish that was a happy enough we could end on. I, d- I really don't think on social justice issues there is, though. No. None of them. Where are we going to turn to? Kids in cages? Is that... We didn't talk about that. should be our next... Right? That should be our next podcast. Yeah. Kids in cages. Because that really bothers me. You know, that's been going on for far too long. But at least they've decided not to give the flu vaccine to kids in cages. Okay. With that, we're going to go. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to go. This is fucked up. 
But anyway, we're going to go. Uh, thank y'all for listening. Uh, please let us know if you have any questions, uh, comments, or concerns. Um, yeah, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Peace. Thank you.